Scripture reading this morning will be from Acts chapter 1. As you find that, you can stand. Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait For what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for um, your word, for what you have revealed to us of yourself and life with you. And I pray, God, that as we look at your word together, that our hearts would be inclined to you and open to you, and that you would be just absolutely free, God, to do your work in us as we each need. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Um, My records show that in the 20 years that I've been keeping records, I have not preached the book of Acts. And um, I know I've done the first two chapters, but I don't have any record of having preached it in the last 20 years. And, um, And I'm not remembering anything beyond that anyway. So if you were here that long and I did it, then maybe you're like me and you can't remember. Wonderful book, and, and so we're going to be, be looking at that now for the next several months, obviously, 28 chapters, and, and my custom is to, is to go through verse by verse, so um, we'll be here for a while. Um, and it's, um, it's an interesting book, fascinating book, um, encouraging, as all of Scripture is, um, one person I heard described Acts as a tra- transitional life form, um, meaning that um, it's a freakish type of time in history. And it's not the Old Testament. It's, it's not quite where, in, in the sense where we are today. It's, it's a transition between Old Testament and New Testament. It is New Testament. But the time and things that are going on here, some of these things are not to be taken as, as normative, but exceptional. Other things are to be taken as normative. And so it's a, it's a complex book, as encouraging um, as it is. The structure of it's really pretty simple. The first 12 chapters focus on Peter, and the rest of the book focuses on Paul. Or you can say the first seven chapters are about the church in Jerusalem, and then 8 through 12 are the church in Judea and Samaria, and then the remaining part of the book, 13 to 28, is the church going out into all the world. So the church starts, the church scatters, the church sins. Um, this book tells us um, of, the, of, the, of the church it has its origin and created by Christ. Its nature is that it is one with Christ 
and that it is to function as an instrument of Christ. Another person said, there are three major lessons for the church from this book. Number one, the church's passion must be the glory of God. Number two, the church's governing principle must be loyalty to Christ. And number three, the church's power must be the Holy Spirit. And then the same person said there are three challenges that grow um, out of the book of Acts. One, what is your motivation as a Christian or why do you do what you do? And number two, what is your method as a Christian or how do you do what you do? And number three is what is your, your focus as a Christian? What do you do? And so our motivation is to be the glory of God. Our method is cooperation with God so that the God is working through us. And our focus as a Christian is Christ himself raised from the dead. Luke wrote this book. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he addressed both, or actually wrote both the Gospel of Luke and Acts for a guy named Theophilus. We don't know about much about him, but apparently he was a believer, well, that's obvious, and a wealthy man who commissioned the writing of these two books. He wanted to, to know about the life of Christ, and so Luke wrote out in orderly fashion the life of Christ as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But the life of Christ doesn't end with the Gospels, and Luke was very clear on that. And so he starts out this book and says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Jesus is still living today, acting and teaching today. We call this the Acts of the Apostles. More accurately, it is the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles, the living, resurrected Christ working through his people. If somebody were to ask you, what is the essence of Christianity? It's not complicated. God became man. He lived among us. He died for our sins. He rose again from the dead. And we don't stop there. Acts says he ascended up into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. The Holy Spirit could not have come to indwell those who place their faith in Christ if Jesus had not first come, died, risen, and ascended. And so the, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is all to bring us to this point, that we can receive the Holy Spirit and have God indwelling us. So this is a hugely significant book because it shows what God has accomplished through Christ. This is the apex of all that God has been intending to do from the very beginning where he said to Eve, your seed shall crush the head of Satan. Where God has for all of human history been working to bring us to this point where the Holy Spirit can come to indwell those who place their faith in Christ. So it is a fascinating book and a wonderful book. I can't help but not pass an opportunity here to tell you a little story um, we have, at His Hill, we have guest speakers almost every week, as many of you know, and I or one of the other staff will introduce those guest speakers on Monday morning. And we had one that I've known for a long time, and, and, um, and I would introduce him each year, and for about three years in a row, he, um, after I finished my introduction, he would take over and say, students, just so you know, you probably don't know this, but, but Charlie was almost named Theophilus. 
instead of Charlie. And the students are going, Theophilus? Nobody's named Theophilus. And, and he goes, yeah, you want to know why they almost named him Theophilus? It's because when he, when he, as soon as he was born, the doctor looked at him and said, this is the awfulest looking baby I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he did that three years in a row. Well, I'm kind of slow, but that, I thought, that's enough. And so the fourth year, I introduced him, and I said, you know, his name is, is Sonny, um, but really nobody names their child Sonny. His real name is Theophilus. <laughs> because when the doctors saw him, they said, this is the, mo- the Theophilus-looking baby I've ever seen in my life. It was the last time he ever pulled that stunt. <laughs> so the ugliest man in the Bible is Theophilus. I want to write to you now of what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. I can't stress that enough, that Christ is alive and active and continuing to do and to teach through his church. And that's what Acts is a record of, the continuing activity of Christ among us. So he says in verse 2, until that day in which he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given order to the apostles whom he had chosen. And the orders were basically, from what we have in this paragraph, just stay in Jerusalem and wait. Not complicated. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Many proofs. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Again, I'm, I'm no historian, but I, have, I read one historian who said there is more evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is that Alexander the Great ever even lived. That's pretty impressive. Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he hung around for 40 days and appeared to many people, and did many things to convince these people who were all skeptics. None of them believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They had all placed their faith in Christ, but they didn't believe that Christ would rise from the dead after he was crucified. On one occasion, he appeared to 500 people at one time. So this was not just a flash He's alive and he's gone. But for more than a month, he walked around on earth with these men, talking with them, teaching them, absolutely shredding any doubt they had in their hearts and minds that he was, in fact, alive. Fully alive. No question about it. It is, is, you couldn't have greater proof. You think, what more could he have done to have proved that he was alive from the dead than what he did? I've said at many funerals, I'll probably continue to say it because I like repeating myself, of the three options of what happened to us when we die. There are only three. Reincarnation, annihilation, or resurrection. Those are the only three options that can happen to us after we die. We are reincarnated and we come back as some other life form. Maybe a bug, maybe a cow but you'll come back as something else. That's what the Hindus believe. The other is annihilation. You just cease to exist. And the third 
which is the Christian doctrine, resurrection. Everybody, no exception, is going to be raised from the dead. Some will be raised to judgment, and some will be raised to an eternity spent with God in fellowship with Him. Those are the only three options. Of those three options, annihilation, reincarnation, and resurrection, only one has historical proof behind it. So if you're placing your faith in reincarnation, you have no evidence whatsoever for your faith. If you're placing your faith in annihilation, that you're just going to cease existing when this life is over, you have no evidence for your faith. So it takes greater faith to believe those things than it does to believe that there is a resurrection and we will all be raised from the dead. Because Christ rose from the dead. And if anybody wanted to disprove that, it was the Jews and the Romans. And all they had to do to disprove it was to present a body. And obviously they couldn't because the tomb is empty. Christ rose from the dead. And he spent all this time, 40 days, convincing them of that fact and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So one conversation. I imagine there's lots of things they would have wanted to talk about during that time, but Jesus kept the conversation on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, for 40 days. And so then in verse 4, and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Now, they've been up in Galilee. We know we were up there. Jesus cooked breakfast for them one morning up there. And they, and they, but they've come back to Jerusalem, and now they're, they're about to, when this paragraph wraps up, this section, they're going to be on Mount Olives. Uh, but it says, Gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for that which the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. Specifically, verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, there's only one thing they had to do. Just wait. He didn't say, wait and pray. He didn't say, wait and do anything. Just wait. Probably the hardest thing you can tell anybody to do. We've got a new dog, and we're trying to teach that dog to sit and stay. I'm telling you, it's like, it's like you're killing me. You can just see it with that dog. He's just shaking, just sitting there, just shaking. Because he wants me to say, okay, and he's gone, you know, like a shot. It is, it is one of the hardest things God could ever ask anybody to do. Do nothing. There is nothing they have to do in order to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. They don't have to request it. They don't have to pray about it. They just wait. And God is going to do it. All the emphasis is on God. All they need to do, just wait. Now, you shall be baptized, as John said, not with water. He baptized you with water. But John told you, I would be baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's in Matthew chapter 3. Now, we're not quite sure what the fire part of it is. Some would say the fire is the flames of fire that are going to appear on their heads in Acts chapter 2. That's reasonable. Another view is that when John says, after me comes one, I'm not worthy to untie the thongs of a sandal, um, he will baptize you with water, I'm sorry, with the spirit and fire, that the fire is the fire of judgment. I like that view better, because you're either going to be baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit if you place your faith in Christ, or you're going to be judged by Christ, because he's Savior and he is judge. 
Those are the only two options that can happen. And so now is the fulfillment of being saved part. That those who have the Spirit of God belong to Him, and at this point they do not yet have the Spirit of God. So he's saying that part is about to be fulfilled. Wait until it happens. And, and again, the emphasis here, it is not the Spirit who is doing the baptizing. Spirit never baptizes anybody. Somebody will say, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Meaning, has the Holy Spirit baptized you? The answer to that question is no. You might have been baptized with the Holy Spirit in the sense that you are baptized into Him, but you are not baptized by the Holy Spirit. You are baptized by Christ into the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. So just wait, and the day's coming when that's going to take place. They probably didn't fully understand um, what that meant, but the command is pretty clear. So we know that that's the beginning of the church. That they, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that when we are baptized um, with the Spirit, we are baptized into the body of Christ. And so this is the beginning of the church at this point. The church is not in the Old Testament. The church is now about to have its inauguration with the Holy Spirit coming to indwell those who place their faith in Christ. Verse 6, And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are res- that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, what's he been talking about for 40 days? The kingdom of God. And now they're saying, is this the time that, the, that Israel gets its own kingdom again? That the kingdom is restored to Israel? Because Israel has not had an autonomous kingdom since they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. It ended at that time. And so they have been waiting all of this time, 500 years, for the day when they can have an autonomous kingdom free from Gentile oppression. Because they're under the Roman Empire. Is it now? Now why would they think it would even happen? Because Daniel told them it would happen. Daniel prophesied very clearly concerning the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he said there's going to be a succession of Gentile empires, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, followed by the Greeks. And then comes the Romans, and they're living in the Roman days. And they go, is it now? Because then after the Romans, there's going to be the kingdom of Christ, a stone cut out without hands, is going to be hurled against that last kingdom. It's going to destroy all the Gentile kingdoms. And then Christ's kingdom would fill the entire earth. And he's been talking about the kingdom of God. That is obviously the kingdom of God, where there will be one kingdom on earth that fills the entire earth. This is what Satan has always been trying to do have one kingdom, a one-world government. He's never going to succeed. He's going to get close in the days of the tribulation, but he'll never succeed. But Jesus will come back to earth, absolutely destroy all the kingdoms of this world, and his kingdom will be a one-world kingdom, such as the world has never seen. And Israel is going to be the capital kingdom, the primary kingdom. All the other kingdom, all the other nations will be ruled from Israel. So you can have a kingdom with many nations. One kingdom doesn't mean one nation. One kingdom, many nations. And all the nations of the world are going to be ruled from Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. 
And these men understand that. That is their assumption. And Jesus is not correcting their eschatology. He's not saying you got it wrong. There is no future kingdom for Israel. They got it right. You got it wrong. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel have nothing in common. He never says that. They understood Daniel correctly. Their eschatology is right. What Jesus tells them is, you don't need to know when it's going to happen. But it's going to happen. The kingdom of God will be on earth and it will involve Israel. So there is still a future for Israel. I believe that because of that truth, that is why Israel has been the focus of persecution for all these years. They would say for 3,000 years. And that may even be too short of an estimate. But at least for the last 2,000 years, there has been a concerted effort by the nations of this world to absolutely annihilate Israel and the Jewish people. If you don't believe that, there's a chapter in a little book called The Coming Apocalypse by Reynolds Showers that take you probably 20 minutes to read it. And, you can, and he just goes through the ages and how the church has treated Israel as well as the governments around um, the Western world. And it is abominable. It is demonic what has happened to Israel and the Jewish people in the 2,000 years since they were dispersed. But there is a future for Israel. God's kingdom, yes, is a kingdom within. If you've received Jesus Christ, the king lives in you. And that kingdom begins right in your heart. But that is not the ultimate that he has in mind. Jesus is going to rule over this planet. And that's why our hope is never going to be in governments. We're all very concerned about the next election and who's going to be there, and we should, and we should pray about it. But our hope will never be in governments because they're all going to be destroyed. The one government we can hope for is when Christ is ruling over this earth. And he's not yet. Satan is still the god of this world. Jesus is in control, but the day will come when Jesus is on this earth, ruling over this planet. It's not that we're not there yet. So in verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. I'm not going to tell you when it's going to take place. Now, we have a lot of information about it because the Lord has given us many prophecies, and we can have a pretty good idea of, of when it's going to happen. But we cannot know for certain. But the more important thing than for us to know when Christ will rule over this planet, when Israel will have the kingdom restored to it. More important than that by far is verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. What you need, folks, is not more knowledge. 
And specifically, you do not need more knowledge about when Jesus is going to establish his kingdom on earth. But one thing you are desperately lacking in is power. Another way to put that is the ability to live the life that you've been called to. Man was never designed to live apart from God. God is the very source, the very dynamic of our humanity. And man living apart from God is an evil creature. It's not what God intended. And he says, you need enabling. You need ability. You are void of God. Having had Jesus with you for the last three years is pretty significant. But it's not enough. Having all the teachings of Jesus and all the miracles of Jesus, you've been blessed beyond measure, but it's not enough. If we had Jesus in this room with us as these disciples had Jesus in their presence, it would not be enough. We need God in us because that's how we've been made, to be indwelt by God, to be empowered by God, because we cannot live this life apart from him. No amount of power, no amount of, I'm sorry, of commitment or of, or, or of willpower is sufficient. I need a power beyond myself to live this life. Our students are reading the second volume of a compilation of A.W. Tozer's books. Um, and these, for this week, they had to read um, from one of his books on the Holy Spirit. And these verses, Tozer says this, You shall receive power. By those words, our Lord raised the expectation of his disciples and taught them to look forward to the coming of a supernatural potency into their natures from a source outside of themselves. It was to become to be something previously unknown to them, but suddenly to come upon them from another world. It was to be nothing less than God himself entering into them with the purpose of ultimately reproducing his own likeness within them. Amen. Christianity takes for granted the absence of any self-help and offers a power which is nothing less than the power of God. This power is sufficient. No additional help is needed. No auxiliary source of spiritual energy, for it is from the Holy Spirit of God comes from this weak, um, I'm sorry, for it is the Holy Spirit of God come where the weakness lay to supply power and grace to meet the moral need. And I really appreciated where he says, here is the whole final message of the New Testament. Through the atonement in Jesus' blood, sinful men have now become one with God. Deity indwelling men. That is Christianity in its fullest effectuation. And even those greater glories of the world to come will be in essence but a greater and more perfect experience of the soul's union with God. Deity indwelling men. That, I say, is Christianity. And no man has experienced rightly the power of Christian belief until he has known this for himself as a living reality. Everything else is preliminary to this. Incarnation, atonement, justification, regeneration. What are these but acts of God preparatory to the work of invading and the act of indwelling the redeemed human soul? Man who moved out of the heart of God by sin now moves back into the heart of God by redemption. 
God, who moved out of the heart of man because of sin, now enters again in his ancient dwelling to drive out his enemies and once more make the place of his feet glorious. Deity in dwelling men. I mean, these simple words here, we don't think enough on them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. You will have then the enabling that you've always lacked. Nothing has changed. This is the most significant thing. This is the apex, the crown of everything that God has been moving toward from Genesis chapter 3 to now. It doesn't get any bigger than this. That mankind now has the potential to be re-inhabited by God, indwelt by God, enabled by God for living this life. If you feel an emptiness in your soul, a desperate inability to live this life, there is one answer and one only to that inability and that desperate need that you sense in your heart. And that is being dwelt by Jesus Christ. And that can only happen through faith in Christ. There is nothing else that will meet us in the emptiness of our souls. That emptiness that is there is a God-shaped void. It can only be met by Christ coming to indwell us through the Holy Spirit. We're living at crazy times when we are saying that the hole that's in people's souls can be met in millions of different ways other than Jesus Christ. And if you begin to say Jesus is the answer for that deep, deep hole in you, we're hated and persecuted. You can tell a child in school who's so conflicted about his sexual identity, you can change that with surgery. But you can't tell that child that is a hole in your soul that has been made to be filled only by God. Whatever it is, that need to be loved, the need to be appreciated, the need to be valued, it is all a God-shaped hole. We have no ability. Jesus says to the disciples in John 15, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. That is man without God. But God is now available to us through faith in Jesus Christ to indwell us and to continue his acts on earth through you and me. That is amazing. God acting through you and me, the continued acts of Jesus Christ, what he is continuing to do and teach, not just through the apostles, but through all in whom he dwells. And when that happens, when God comes to dwell in you through faith in Christ, and by the way, I'm assuming you understand what I'm talking about. Faith in Christ. It's not complicated. It's not weird. It's just coming to that place where you recognize you cannot live this life. And you were never designed to. And it's putting yourself at the mercy of God and just saying, God save me. I understand Jesus came into this world to die for my sins. I understand that he's been risen from the dead. I understand that he's ascended into heaven and I know that his one desire is to indwell me. So God, here I am. Save me. Indwell me. Take this life and live it as only you can. And scripture says, you're a child of God. Hallelujah. 
And because it is the Holy Spirit coming to live in you, there's a direct correlation between the presence of the Spirit and you becoming a witness of Jesus Christ. What's the correlation? What is the connection there? Spirit of God comes to live in you, and immediately you are a witness of Jesus Christ. And doesn't say it's because you start talking about Jesus. Before you, any of these guys ever open their mouth, just by the fact that the Spirit has come to live in them, they are made witnesses of Jesus Christ. If they never open their mouth, they are still witnesses of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the witness of Jesus Christ. That is the one thing that, that excites him, motivates him more than anything else, is to give witness concerning Jesus Christ. And so when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're receiving the universe's greatest witness concerning Christ, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that it is to your advantage that I go away in John 16. We are better off having the Holy Spirit indwell us than we were to have Christ standing here physically in this room and not have, Christ, not have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. It is to our advantage. And he says, and when I send him, he will be your helper, he will be your comforter, he will bear witness of me. So if I never open my, open my, if I never open my mouth and speak concerning Jesus... It does not change the fact of what happened to me when I placed my faith in Christ for salvation, for eternal life. The Holy Spirit came to live in me, and I became at that moment a witness of Jesus Christ. That means I'm a witness of him, two senses. I belong to him, possession, and I talk about him. My life, not just my speech, but my life bears witness of him. In both senses, that's true. Many years ago, I've used this illustration before, um, we had left a church that we had gone to in Corpus where we grew up. And, um, and after being gone for a couple of years, um, we decided, my dad did, and kids, I don't remember how, but we decided to go back and visit the old church. Just one Sunday, go back and visit. Well, the time that we had been gone, they had changed pastors, and they had built a brand-new sanctuary. Big building, and with a balcony in it, and so steps leading up to the building. And so as we got out of the car, all, all of us piled out of the car and start walking up to the church. One of my old friends ran up to me and said, Charlie, great to see you, man. Haven't seen you forever. He says, he says you want, can, can you come sit with, sit with me in the balcony? And so I turned to my dad, and I said, Dad, is that all right? And he goes, sure, take your brothers with you. And so I went up to the balcony, my two brothers and my friend. And we got up there, and there was nobody else in the balcony. It had been closed. Because when they built that building, they made the front wall of the balcony too high, and you couldn't see the preacher. And so they just shut down the balcony until they could tear the wall down, make it a little lower. And so my friend knew that. I had no idea. And so we've got the whole balcony to ourselves. It's like being at church and not being at church. And so they're singing down there, and he starts preaching. Well, what do you do? Four boys in a balcony unsupervised. <laughs> so we all had bulletins, and they became airplanes. And so we're winging airplanes. Woo, woo. And so the preacher can see the airplanes going. Well, that got boring. 
And so we took off our shoes and started throwing our shoes at each other. And the shoes were hitting the wall and hitting metal chairs. And the pastor, he just kept going higher on his tiptoes and he could see his shoes and stuff. And finally, we hear him say, I am sorry, folks. I cannot continue preaching while that noise is going on in the balcony. Would some men please go up there and get those boys out of the balcony? Well, all of a sudden, I'm awake. And I, and I look around, and my, my friend has just vanished. I don't know how he did it. He, just, he was gone. I didn't see him leave. He was just gone. you got three McCall boys sitting there. Oh, my. So I thought, this is the last day of my life. I'm going to die right here in church. So I thought, after we went home, the only way I can possibly redeem this situation is to go to the man and apologize. And so I got in our little Volkswagen bug, and I drove over there. I was 16 years old. So you thought I was only four or five years old. No, I wasn't. <laughs> My dad's saying he drove me over. He didn't. I, I drove over. 16 years old when that happened. And I stood on the front porch of that man's house, rang his doorbell, got him up from his lunch. So now it's another offense. And, um, and I said, sir, my name is Charlie McCall, and I'm one of the boys that was messing up. And, and I'm trying to get my apology out, and all he hears is Charlie McCall. And he goes, McCall, McCall, are you a son of Porter McCall? And I'm going, oh, my word, he knows my dad. Because I didn't even think they knew each other, because it's a different pastor. And then he, uh, boy, just dressed me down. And he goes, I cannot believe a son of Porter McCall would behave the way that you boys behave today. And I remember just slinking off his porch and back to the car and going home. But I learned a powerful lesson. I am a witness of my father, like it or not. And I was born a witness of my father. Whether I open up my mouth, I am a witness of him because I have his name. And we are witnesses of Jesus Christ in all that we say and do, whether we like it or not. The moment you place your faith in Christ and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, at that moment you became a witness, not of yourselves, not of your parents, but of Jesus Christ. Because the witness of Christ lives in you. And this is what you are now. It's not what you will be. This is not what you're going to learn if you take a class in evangelism. This is what you are a witness of Jesus Christ every moment, every day of your life. We belong to him, and we give testimony concerning him. Nothing is more significant than that God is now available to live in the hearts of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And the Spirit of God himself comes, and now he becomes the very means that we have always lacked for living this life. He is the source and the means and the goal of this life. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you, God, especially for all that you are to us. That you're all that we'll ever need. Your power is sufficient. We don't need you and something else. We just need you. And that you have come to indwell us in the person of your son for all those who simply stand before you and say, Jesus, save me. Give me that eternal life which I've been created for. 
and have been lacking until that moment, God, that we say yes to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your daily presence with us. And thank you, God, for your enabling to be the witness that we have become. In Christ's name, amen.